Right, our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, Gospel of John, chapter 14. John's Gospel, chapter 14. I'm going to begin reading at verse 15. John 14, 15. And if you're able, please, to stand. For the reading of God's holy word, please do so. John 14, beginning at verse 15, and I'll read on to the end of the chapter. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. And will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded him, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please do be seated. This passage in John 14 is, uh, that we've just read is a portion of something that's commonly called the Upper Room Discourse, where the Lord Jesus Christ has met with his, met with his disciples on that, that uh, great Passover where he institutes the Lord's Supper and they have fellowship together there before he uh, goes to the cross. And, you know, all along through the ministry of our Lord on earth, he would be telling his disciples things that if, if they had early on had the discernment to, to figure out what he was actually talking about, they might have been more alarmed. There were many things that they just didn't understand. It just didn't click in their minds about what he was saying regarding what he was here to do and what he was going to do. And you know, he, he talked about you know, the, the sign of Jonah, did he not? He talked about tearing down the temple and rebuilding it in three days. He talked about the, 
the harm and the, the, uh, the, the opposition that the Pharisees would bring uh, and him and the Jews would bring to him. And really even talking about the rejection of, of his people as a whole that were coming. But you know, I think the disciples were, in a sense, they were like riding a wave. And they were excited. They saw you know, people being healed and demons being cast out and people being fed and all those other things. And they just looked around and were like, oh, wow, you know, uh, this is fantastic. Uh, he's the king. He's going to do all these things. And it just all seemed so wonderful that they didn't want it to end. And I think it was just hard for them to hear about these things where Jesus is saying, there's going to come a day when uh, people are going to reject me and the Son of Man is going to be delivered up. That was a challenge for them. Here in the Upper Room Discourse, he gets really playing with them and basically says, I'm going to be delivered up, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going away. And suddenly, all those things, I think, that they'd been hearing about, that they'd just been kind of laying there in the back of their minds, came into sharp focus and went, wait, what? You're doing what? What the, you know, and what are we supposed to do? And where are you going? And why can't we come with you? We don't want to be here alone. I mean, all of those kind of things are there. And Jesus in this upper room uh, discussion here with them is addressing those kinds of fears. You know, we read many places in the scriptures of the Lord's care for us, his sovereign love for us, that he holds us in his hand. He's not going to let us go. And yet we face things like cancer, like war, like death, like all kinds of afflictions that pour in upon us. And as we talked about last, last week, we wonder why. Why, Lord? Where are you? What's, what's happening here? So I wanted to keep going on what we talked about last week a little bit from a different passage. But speaking here this morning about the peace that Christ leaves to us that peace that we long for, that peace in the midst of all kinds of affliction and difficulty and trial, and really understanding where it comes from and what it means when we talk about peace. You know, can you think of, in your mind's eye, a common greeting, particularly from the Apostle Paul, that he, as he wrote to the churches, he always said, grace and peace to you. And we're quite familiar with that, right? In, in the church, we hear that all the time. Grace and peace to you, grace and peace. Grace and peace to you in the name of God the Father, the God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace to you uh, and to the saints with you. And all those kinds of sayings and statements that are made over and over and over again. I think it's one of those things that we think about very little because we hear it so much. We're going to kind of dive into the, the peace aspect. And of course, grace is there as well because we wouldn't have his peace if it were not for his grace, this, the favor that he pours, about, pours out upon us in spite of the fact that we don't deserve any of it. And there's a lot in this world, is there not, to cause us fear and to cause us doubt and to bring trouble. Uh, mankind uh, spends its days, oddly enough, at least claiming to be seeking peace, does it not? And yet for all of that, the turmoil 
And the chaos and the violence and the wickedness just continues marching on. In spite of all man's efforts to bring about peace in this world, every single one of them has utterly failed. And I mean that very sincerely. You might think, in, you know, if you look back on history or even in current days where we talk about peace accords or peace treaties and all those other kinds of things. And certainly those can have a temporary cessation of hostilities. But I think most of us recognize that most of those things uh, from man's perspective, perspective are really just giving everybody a chance to reload. There's no true lasting peace that man can bring. Only Christ can do that. Now let's make it a little more personal. How many times have you found yourself confronted with situations and problems that were beyond your imagination? with no real resources in yourself to do anything else but just stare hopelessly at them, wondering what to do. It's easy to find yourself in despair, even as a believer, if we take our eyes off of Christ. Now, the disciples here are in that condition. All of a sudden, it's smacking them in the face that the Lord Jesus Christ is not physically going to be present there. And they're trying to sort that out. Uh, he's talked about going somewhere. They want to go. He talks about the cross. They're like, well, how's that going to happen? They can't figure this out. Even though he's been teaching them for three years, day in and day out, of which we only have a small portion in the Word, what God wanted us to know. But I think it's a reasonable assumption that he said other things in three years besides just what's recorded in the Gospels. So, based on that, you'd think, wow, wouldn't they have a better clue about this? Wouldn't they have a better understanding about this? Hmm. So, let me ask you a little question. How many here have been going to church since you were a child? That's the majority. How many have been um, going um, regularly as possible to every service that you possibly can? How many of you have ever read a commentary? Have you read your Bible through all the way? More than once. Okay. Um, ever done any counseling with anybody about some particular issue? Okay, um, listen to a Bible broadcast. Uh -huh. Okay, how many of you have perfect understanding of all that? See, that's my point. The disciples, in the very presence of the Savior, three years, that doesn't sound like very long, and yet it was constant. And in three years' time, they got, talk about a seminary education, wow. And yet, they didn't understand the most basic thing about what Christ was here to do until the very crux of the moment. And it totally threw them for a loop. And we can often be in the same boat. In spite of all of the reading that we do, in spite of all the listening that we do, in spite of all the praying that we do, and the counseling and the study and everything else, when we get smacked in the face with life's issues and troubles, 
It's easy to get rattled, just like the disciples did. But so, so for them, for the, for the disciples who needed answers, and for, for you, the words of verse 27 are really the lifeline here. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Dear friends, when Christ promises peace, you have no cause for fear or anxiety in this life or in the next. It doesn't mean there won't be things that could cause that anxiety and, and uh, cause fear. But to be swallowed up by it and controlled by it for the person who's truly in possession of the peace that Christ has promised, then those things may swirl around us, but we, by His grace, will be able to walk in peace. Now, where does this peace come from? Peace, and I'm defining peace here uh, and really the concept, it's not just about an absence of conflict. It's about the actual resolution of the causes of the conflict in the per first place so that you have freedom from that, uh, that fear and anxiety. Uh, this is a bit of a silly example, but I think it will make the point. Uh, I've been, as you know, I've been, uh, as many of you know, I've been uh, working, directing a youth camp over in Montana this past week. I'll be heading back over there this evening to wrap things up tomorrow and Tuesday. But um, I don't sleep well in the cabins. My back just really hates those bunks with a passion. So this year... I brought a hammock, and I discovered in Peru that hammocks, my back loves hammocks. It doesn't make any sense to me why, but it's great. I wake up with no pain, so it's cool. So I've got my hammock strung up outside between two trees. I've got a rain fly over it, which was necessary this past week. It was great. It was cozy. It was wonderful. But let me talk to you about the idea of, the, of, of two different kinds of peace. When I sleep in my hammock, um, I am totally at peace to a certain extent. And I say to a certain extent because uh, bears have been seen on that property. And um, yeah, there's some other wild animals running around. So I lay there in faith believing, no bears. Please, Lord, no bears. And then I go to sleep. Um, so there's an element of peace there. I'm sleeping peacefully in my hammock. And yet... Somewhere in the back of my subconscious self, you know, half asleep mind or fully asleep mind, there is the recognition that right, I have my I have my light, I have my sidearm, and I hope I don't have to use it. You know what? If I want a genuine, true, absolute, com complete peace, what would I do? Put the hammock in the truck and go sleep inside the cabin. Because the cabin sort of really removes me entirely, and I don't have to—I don't have to think about my sidearm and my light, and wondering if I'm going to hear these noises outside. Oh, a human taco! Yeah, this is great. So I can say it's a silly example, but you know, there. 
Peace is not just like I'm doing in my hammock, pretending and hoping that, some, that nothing bad is going to happen. Christ's peace is not that kind of peace. It takes care of the problem, puts us completely out of harm's way of our adversary. So we actually can rest without fear. So I think that's the kind of peace that we all would really like to have, is it not? And I love how this starts off as our, as our Lord begins here in verse 15. The peace that is ours, first of all, comes, and I'm going to be very careful when I say this, because the next word, the next uh, section of this really does focus on God's word and his revelation. But it starts off with Christ's presence. It is he himself that is the source of our peace. If we never had a Bible, the Lord would find a way to reveal himself to his own and be present with us. Thankfully, he gives us a Bible, which makes it even richer and more intelligent and more ordered and more, more uh, vital. But it starts with his presence. And his presence is manifested through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So take a look at these verses here. He, he tells us quite clearly. I'm going to come back to verse 15 in a moment. Verse 16 and 17. I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Christ dwells with us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that the giving of the Spirit is not an afterthought. This is something that is an answer to, to Christ's prayers. He declares this is going to happen. He says, I am asking this of the Father. And in John 17, a couple of chapters later, he's going to be even more uh, clear about praying to the Father that the Father would send the Spirit and the Spirit would unite his people together so that they are one, even as Christ and the Father are one. It's interesting here that uh, an interesting phrase, I don't know if you caught the word, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, another helper. Well, who is the first helper? If the Holy Spirit's another helper, who's the first one? And remember, he's talking to the disciples, right? He's been with them for three years. So he's really speaking of himself here. You know, when we talk about the persons of the Godhead, they are not at... Uh, at odds with each other, in opposition with each other. They share uh, many of the same attributes because they are indeed the three persons of the Godhead. Christ himself was a comforter throughout the ministry that he had on earth with his disciples, was he not? They were often afraid. They were often uncertain. And sometimes he would rebuke them, but basically he'd be reminding them, am I not here right with you? Why are you afraid? I'm here to, to resolve those things, whether it was on the sea, whether it was uh, in the face of persecution or whatever. Christ was there as their comforter. And they know that. And they're like, don't leave us. And he's going to say, I'm going to send you another comforter. And in a way, a comforter that is better. And in these terms, in these terms, um, that Christ... Uh, is going to depart 
but the, the Spirit is going to be with him forever, be with the, be with the disciples and be with us forever, um, starting now, <laughs> where there would be a time where Christ would be absent from this earth physically. This, uh, this uh, he will say later on that it's better that he leaves and that the Spirit comes. You ever thought about why it would be better? I mean, I don't know about you, but I would just be over the moon if Christ was here physically on this earth. Have the, but yet, think about it for a minute. If Christ was here physically on the earth right now, where would he be? Are we just going to expect him to zoom around the earth all the time? Well, that could happen for sure. But there would be times when he would be somewhere else than where we are. That's why Christ says it's better that I go away and he come because the Spirit can be with you and be with all of you all the time, regardless of where you are, when you are, and what part of the world you are at all. It doesn't matter. The Spirit is there as the third person of an infinite Godhead. He is God. John, uh, he's referred to as the Spirit of Truth, 1 John chapter 5. Uh, in that little letter, the Apostle describes the Spirit who is truth. You see the identity there and the same characteristic of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, the commentator and Greek scholar uh, John Alford said that, he, that the Spirit is the one of whom all truth comes and who alone leads into the whole truth, the truth of God. He is the one that, as Jesus says here, will, will call, bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus has taught. And he says in verse 17, makes it clear that not everyone knows who the Spirit of God is. Not everyone has a relationship with him. Uh, the Spirit is known only by his own. And we see that there in, uh, in verse, the, the world cannot receive the Spirit. It neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him because he dwells with you and will be in you. This kind of goes along with uh, Paul's thoughts in 1 Corinthians chapter one, when he says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Jesus would say elsewhere in the Gospel of John, in describing his relationship with his people, describes, describes us as sheep and himself as the shepherd, and he says, my sheep hear my voice. There are sheep of other folds uh, who, have, who are looking to other shepherds, but... Uh, those that are in the folds that are his, whether they are the disciples or in other places where Jesus is worshipped, uh, they hear his voice, we hear his voice, and we follow him. That is something that the Spirit of God brings about and enables us to do, so that we know uh, that uh, we are his, as we're told elsewhere that... Uh, that, that our testimony of joy and confidence comes because the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are His. And the world doesn't have that. This is this uh, incredible source of our peace, that we're not left alone, that, the, that, that Christ, through His Spirit, ministers to us on a regular, daily, constant basis. 
through his word, through circumstances, through the fellowship of the saints. All of those things. So he dwells with us through the Holy Spirit. And, but there's, it goes on beyond just this sort of metaphysical presence kind of thing. When Christ left his disciples, where did he go? First of all, intermediate step, he went to the cross. Then he went to the grave. And then he went to glory. It could be really easy for the disciples to look at that. And indeed, I think that as it started to sink in about his death that was coming, I think it terrified them. How can we have peace if you're not here? That's why the resurrection is so important, because Christ conquered death. He conquered what conquers all of us. And these verses here, this passage in John 14, Jesus makes it really clear that it's his life. Now, this is not, I mean, he's talks the necessity of the cross is there, but the necessity of the resurrection must be there. If it's only the cross and not the resurrection, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection, we're hopeless. So it's a package deal. It really is the entire life of Christ that is the guarantee of our peace. A life of perfect obedience, both active and passive. A life of, that, that led to the spotless lamb going to the cross and being able then to die on that cross and have his blood mean something. And then the resurrection, and rising up in new life by his own strength and the command of the Father to conquer death, that is the guarantee of our peace. The disciples, we know that the disciples if the, did not understand the resurrection at this point. At this point, they're just starting to let the whole idea of his, him having to die sink in. And they would not remember his words about raising again until after he'd been risen. Remember that from that account. There's a, as they saw all these things and heard the testimony, then they remembered the words that Jesus had said to them. But until then, they didn't have that. They, they weren't thinking about the resurrection. They were terrified. And Jesus is saying, listen, listen to me. My life is the guarantee of your peace. Now, if you think about that for just a minute, you'll understand that, yes, I have to die, but that's not the end game. I'll be, I'll be rising again. Jesus says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. Pay attention, he's saying to them. I'm not abandoning you. I will come to you. I mean, if they're thinking about this and, put, and, and connecting the dots, they should be going, okay, he's going to die, but he's going to come to us. So that must mean this must not be permanent. So I, maybe I shouldn't freak out about this. But they're not there yet. Often with us, we have trouble connecting the dots too, do we not? The word orphans comes from a Greek word. Um, are you ready for it? Orphans. <laughs> or orphanu, if you want. But uh, that's the Greek word. Um, but it means comfortless. I will not leave you without comfort, abandoned. You know, those who are without a father uh, do not have that comfort, do not have that that provision, that protection, uh, they are cast off without 
parents and care and comfort. That's why the, the uh, scriptures tell us that, that those who are without God in the world are without hope. Christ's life is a guarantee of your peace. I mean, he's already told them, even before this passage, in verse 3 of chapter 14, he says, I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. It's, for them, just like us, I think these words probably bounced off their eardrums and they were still just trying to wrap their heads around, he's going away. Uh, but that promise was there, it's coming back. Paul would say in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is uh, no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is Christ's crucifixion, death, and resurrection that is the ground of our peace. That's our guarantee that, that we will have a life of comfort and hope and provision and protection uh, and joy because he has conquered sin and death. So along with just the fact that he is living and the promise of his return, he does dwell with us now. And particularly, he dwells, the focus here in this passage, he's focusing on the, on the fact that he dwells with his children who walk in obedience to him. In verse 15, we read there, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then when you get down to verse 21, you see this theme repeated. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Incredible, incredible words. We read that, and I won't ask you to raise your hands this time, but I want you to think about this. Um, Anybody here perfectly obey the Lord? Uh, the Lord uh, makes it pretty, he declares very plainly that nobody can, nobody does, and nobody will, except for the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this sin problem that goes on and on. And yet, Christ dwells with his children. So, in one respect, these statements about whoever has his commands, I will dwell with, has his commands and keeps them. Um, yeah, they're truly my children and I will dwell with them. That should cause us all a little concern at first. If we want Christ to dwell with us, we need to be obedient. And yet in our fallen flesh, it is impossible for us to perfectly keep God's law. So what is the remedy? Only God could provide the remedy, and that is the one who perfectly kept the law and died in our place, and his righteousness would then be applied to our account. It's the only way. And that truly is the gospel. The good news. That what we could not do, Christ did. And did it once for all, and finished it. That doesn't let us off the hook to go, <laughs> to say, well... I don't need to worry about being obedient because after all, God loves me anyway. Jesus makes it real plain here that that's not the case. Communion with him, fellowship with him, uh, having the ministry of the Spirit in our hearts and lives 
is dependent upon us not walking at cross purposes to our sovereign God, according to our own flesh and our own willfulness and our own sin, but rather demonstrating the reality of the relationship that we have with him in obedience to his word. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God. In other words, this is what the love of God is all about. This is what it constitutes. This is what it looks like, that we keep his commandments. Anyone who says, well, I love God, John will say in his, that, that uh, first epistle there, anybody who says, I love God, but hates his brother, or walks according to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is, you, you, can help, you can say all the words you want, but you're not of the Father if your life is demonstrating that you're walking contrary to him and in rebellion to him. Interesting, Jesus answers Judas' uh, question here, which really, um, I look at this question, and sometimes the, question, sometimes the disciples, there's a couple times when they ask questions that are kind of dumb. <laughs> you know, um, we might say, oh, they're kind of newbie questions, you know, the, the things that should be obvious, what they ask. This is not one of those questions. This is a really thoughtful question on Judas's part. How is it that you're going to manifest or make yourself known, make yourself clear to us and not to the world? This, uh, how is that going to happen? Jesus' answer is that only those who demonstrate their love for Christ by obedience have any part in him and will therefore have the blessing of the Holy Spirit who will make Jesus known, manifest uh, our Lord and Savior to us through his word, ministering to our hearts and minds. So your peace begins with the Lord Jesus Christ himself dwelling with us through the Spirit, living so that he might uh, minister to us and through us, through the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> interceding for us before the Father, uh, <clears throat> dwelling and abiding with us and caring for us, listening to our prayers, and so on, as we walk in obedience to him. It's like, okay, that's great, but how do we know that we're walking in obedience to him? And that's where this next passage comes in. So when we look, or the next section comes in, beginning at verse 25. Uh, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. So he's, he, you know, in other words, I am prepping you for what's to come. But the, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So let's stop there for just a second. Your peace, yes, comes from Christ's presence as the living, our living Savior, the living Word, as He ministers to us by the Spirit of God. But as the living Word, He's also given to us what theologians refer to as big word, inscripturated word, the written word. His revelation that has been given to us uh, through the apostles and the prophets. And that word is made clear by the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 25, Christ has already revealed things directly. He's revealed to them a lot. And, and certainly throughout uh, all history before him, through the prophets, also, and we know our Savior was there, appearing at different times in, uh, during the Old Testament uh, history. 
uh, to directly reveal things as well. But Christ himself is the living word. He has made, um, he has laid the foundation that all of us need to walk on as far as our knowledge and what we know about God and what we are to do uh, in response to that knowledge. All that we need to know, Christ has given to us. But even in the, in the uh, if, if, I don't mean to be flippant about God's word, and I'm not really doing that at all, but you, know, you guys heard of Cliff Notes or kind of the Reader's Digest version? I don't like what Reader's Digest did to the Bible. But in a sense, we know that from John's Gospel later on, John said, if I wrote down everything that Jesus said and did, it would fill the world with the books. So we know that this is kind of the Cliff Notes version of what Jesus talked about. Um, the, the highlights, the things that he absolutely wanted us to know. The rest, we can speculate, we can think about, we can wonder, but this is what we know, and this is where our feet are planted. He's provided that foundation for what we need to know. But I don't know about you, even in the, even in the quote-unquote Cliff Notes version, after whatever, 40 years of dedicated study and a lifetime of sitting under the teaching of God's Word, I personally still have a hard time keeping my hand on all the different threads and strings and, and points here and keeping them all together in an orderly fashion, no matter how much study we do. We're finite. Even here, there's so much detail that to keep it all in mind every time we consider any, just pick a passage somewhere and read it and, and then try to say, all right, what are all the threads and everywhere else in Scripture that speak to that passage? And I guarantee you, you will not get them all. You just won't, which is why it behooves all of us to walk humbly before our God and before His Word and uh, be careful about what we, think we, what we say we think we know. Jesus sent us a helper who is just as infinite as he is, who is certainly able to keep all those threads together because it's his revelation. And bring to our remembrance those things that we need to know when we need to know them so that we can walk in a way that is pleasing to our God and obedience to his word. So your peace comes not just from knowing a person, but knowing what, exactly what that person wants us to do and how he wants us to behave and where he wants us to go. Um, a number of you are veterans in, uh, of the military, and um, you may even have had some superior officers that you actually liked. But whether you liked them or not, they were superior officers. You knew they were there. You knew that they had... Uh, authority to do things. Uh, you may have even had some kind of relationship within the proper spheres of the levels of authority and so on. But if those, uh, if those officers were just there and never gave you any orders, but yet somehow expected you to just know what to do, uh, how would that have worked? Would that have filled you with confidence in being in this man's army? Probably not. No, orders have to be given and have to be given clearly. You can like the guy or dislike the guy. That's almost in our in the military circumstances that means absolutely nothing. But 
the reality is that there is someone giving the orders, but there are orders given. Sometimes they need to be explained. Uh, I'm sure there were times orders came down to, uh, to you and you were like, uh, not sure what this means or what I'm supposed to do with it. You might have to go back and ask some questions. Well, thankfully, in this circumstance, we have a loving, personal relationship with our king who gives us our marching orders and provides the interpreter of them for us in the spirit so that we can actually have peace instead of fear and wondering, what am I supposed to do now? What does God want when he tells us in his word and he's promised uh, to teach us what we need? And so he's provided the foundation. He's provided the teacher. First Corinthians chapter two, Paul says, these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And he goes on to say, we have the mind of Christ. How can you make such an incredible statement? It's because, not of his wisdom, not because he gets some kind of private thing, it's because of the promise of the Spirit of God to his people, so that we may know Christ's mind. As Calvin points out in talking about these verses, it says the Holy Spirit will not be a builder of new revelations. He reveals to us what the foundation that Christ has already revealed to us from day one. So Christ's word is made clear by the Spirit of God, and Christ's word is also different than the world's. Look at 27 and 28. We've already read 27. He speaks about the peace that he leaves, and this peace is not the kind of peace that the world gives. We've kind of talked about that before. His word is different. His peace is different. In verse 28, we read this. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. It's kind of a, that's got a little bit of a sting to it. The disciples, it must have kind of like, what do you mean if I love you? We, we love you, Lord. But he's trying to help them see that their love is weak. Uh, you know, it's, we just had the, the funeral service yesterday for our brother, Steve Russell. And, you know, every time I go to a funeral um, for a believer, it's a mixed emotional time, is it not? And, and, and it seems like I had the same conversation always with somebody, and I had it yesterday, in thinking about how, uh, you know, we're saddened by... Uh, the fact that he's not here anymore, but at the same time, you know, rejoicing that he's with the Lord. And yet a lot of times, you know, we kind of focus on our own sadness and uh, which to the person I was talking to, she was reading my mind. <laughs> she was on the same, same track and it was like, yeah, that sadness is kind of a selfish thing, is it not? That, you know, we want them here with us. You know, do I really love them? Do I really love this person? Yeah, well, I'm going to be rejoicing that they're with the Lord, out of pain, out of suffering, out, you know, out of heartache, in absolute perfect peace, knowing uh, the rest that has been promised. And so uh, the world wants to have a different kind of peace that comes and goes, and it is very self-serving. But that's not, uh, that's not the peace that Christ has. He promises a peace that is absolutely 
genuine, and we, we've spoken of this before, that actually takes care of the problem, not just whitewashes or puts a Band-Aid on things or gives a temporary ceasefire, a, a genuine peace. Paul, tells the, uh, Paul commands the Philippians in chapter 4, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds, or guard your hearts and minds, through Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus would go on to say in John chapter 16, uh, just a little bit later in the upper room there, that... Uh, he says, I have spoken to you, it's his word, that in me you might have peace. We need to listen to his word because the peace that he speaks to us is different than the world's. It is absolutely genuine. An interesting thought gives you an idea uh, regarding the nature of peace when the Lord's talking about it. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 36 if you we won't take time to look at it there, but jot down that reference, Acts 10.36, and go look at it and note that peace is synonymous with salvation. It takes care of the problem of sin. That is the nature of Christ's peace. And this peace, uh, well, it is because it's genuine. Well, it's obviously not of earth. It's heavenly. And we see that also in verse 28, uh, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And I, so I mean by that, uh, that the peace is heavenly is that there is not just an earthly manifestation of Christ's peace in our hearts, but we look forward to ultimate peace in heaven with the Father when we are together with him. Uh, chapter 16 and verse 28. And you can take a look over there. Uh, 1628 says, I came from the Father and have come into the world and now am leaving the world and going to the Father. That's where our ultimate peace is to be found. You know, when he says the Father is greater than I, he's not talking about essence, like he's a lesser God. He's speaking about this subordination within the economy of the Trinity that uh, Christ voluntarily has submitted himself to the divine plan, functioning um, in, a, in a, a manner that is often described to us as the Son. Um, and so Christ is showing the way to a peace that cannot be taken away as he walks in absolute subordination and, and obedience to the Father's plan, down to every minute detail. Indeed, if he had not done that, we would have no salvation because he would have proved himself to be nothing more than a glorified man. And then fallen man, um, it, it glorified, and that glory would have been sullied by sin. So if he didn't fulfill all God's will, he's no better than the rest of us and therefore no Savior. So he is the divine one who's from the Father, with the Father, and that is the nature and the ground of our peace. Not our, not our, the, the world's idea of peace, which is peace for a time, but death forever. Uh, God's peace 
in the fallen world, there's death for a time, but then peace forever. And that's the nature of his peace and why it comes from what he has revealed. And then the final section here, verses 29 to 31, uh, speaks to the, the unity between what Christ has said and what God is saying. In other words, that Christ's word truly is God's word. So you look at verse 29. Now I have told you before it takes place. What does that word reveal to the disciples? What should that have said to them? Um, this is in the Christ fulfilling his offer as a prophet is telling what is about to come. His word reveals his omniscience and his knowledge of the things to come. His word reveals holiness. You see that also in verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me. Or some translations, he has nothing in Christ. There's no toehold that, that the, the adversary has upon Jesus whatsoever. I think all of us are familiar with uh, one of the dangers of politics and one of the nasty things about it is that uh, when candidates run, what do their opponents love to do? They go dig back through their past, do some research, find something that they can get a hook into them and either buy them off or discourage them or trash their name or use as a way to, uh, if they get into office, as a use, in a use in a way to get them to do whatever they want them to do, the dirty politics, right? Wouldn't it be nice if a candidate would come up that was absolutely pure as a driven snow, that there was absolutely no sin, no failure, no indiscretion, no false word, nothing that anybody could grab onto and lay claim to that individual and go, I've got this over you, you need to do what I tell you to do, or you're done. Satan, the greatest adversary of all, had nothing that he could hold over Christ's head. Not a thing, because of his perfection. And his word reveals that holiness. His word also reveals divine love. Look at, look at uh, also verse 29. I've told you before it takes place, so that it, when it does take place, you may believe. And then look at verse 31. Um, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. So what Christ has been saying reveals divine love. He loves the Father. We know that the Father loves him as well. And he's going to say that later on in this discourse. But he's showing that love and demonstrating it to the disciples by not leaving them in the dark. What an incredible blessing that we have as we hold this written word in our hearts and that the Spirit comes alongside and teaches us regarding it and reminds us of, how, of what Christ has said and, how, and, and guides our minds to put all the strings together so that we come together with a comprehensive um, uh, weaving together of this marvelous tapestry that is our life in Christ. That's love. Love seen for the disciples and even for Christ himself here. That is God's word. We don't have a hateful set of orders coming down, a hateful word, but a glorious uh, divine love being poured out through the pages of scripture and as the spirit of God then teaches us and applies it to our hearts.
And the final aspect of, of divinity that we see here, deity that we see in Christ's word, which brings us peace, is his power. His word reveals divine power. So um, take a look there at the last phrase of verse 31. You might wonder, how does how do you get power out of that, Pastor? Rise, let us go from here. Uh, this is an inference, but I think it's one that I can defend not only from this passage, but from others. When Christ says he's going to do something, he does it. When the, the Lord's word will not return to him empty, it will accomplish the purposes for which he sent out. Those are some of the passages that speak to the power of God's word. What I see here in these words, um, actually a, a good paraphrase of this, the, world of, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim upon me, but I will show the world that I love the Father and do exactly as he commands. There is power and ability that is being asserted in that state phrase. And then he says, as a punctuation mark, really the, the, uh, the way you could translate this, let us go from here is, is kind, of a, kind of a polite way or a, a more staid you know, formal way of saying this. Basically, what he's saying literally is uh, up or get up. Let's get to it. The way we would put it this day. It's time to get, you know, daylight's burning. It's time to go. And that also speaks to confidence in the power that comes from God to accomplish what is about to happen. Even though the disciples are not aware of all the details of what's going to happen in Gethsemane and what's going to happen at the cross and all those other things, though, you know, now they've got this vague idea of the Son of Man being betrayed and so on and delivered up to the hands of ungodly men. They, 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 their, their minds won't even let them conceive of the horror of what they're going to see. Jesus knows it all. In the Garden of Eden, uh, Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane, he would pray. You know, let this cup pass from me. He knew what was coming. And yet he still says, let's get to it. Because he knows that even as he lays down his life, his father, he would say, has, given, has commanded me and has given me the power to raise me up again, to, that I would raise myself up again. That's power. And Christ has peace in it. And he wanted the disciples to understand that, that what was going to happen was going to happen by the wisdom and the infinite plan of God, but that God would bring it about. I don't know about you, but that brings me a great deal of peace. When I comprehend that Jesus intends to confront the adversary here at this place, and then knowing that now that he walked and did that intention. He carried it out and did it perfectly. And that he died, rose, and revived so that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. He has accomplished it. It's once for all done. Praise God. And be at peace as you rest in that truth. Because truly when Christ promises peace, you have no real cause for anxiety or fear in this life or fear for the next. Jesus declares later on in John, in chapter 16, verse 33, he says, In the world you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I have overcome 
the world. And because he's overcome, we can be assured of his presence. We can have confidence in his word. And, the, and knowing that the peace that he left us can never be shaken. And I pray that each of you know that peace. If you do not, now is the time to plead to Christ for his mercy, to confess and repent of your sins, and to cast yourself upon him for his salvation. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you for the peace that Christ has left to us. A peace that passes all understanding, even though we've tried to scratch the surface of it here this morning. Lord, I pray that you would pour out that peace upon us through Jesus Christ as we walk in obedience to you and in faith in his finished work. Lord, let us not strive to create our own peace, which, even if successful in this life, would die with us. No, Lord, let us seek after your eternal divine peace and trust in your promises to bring it to us through your spirit, according to the word. Lord, we desire to dwell with you, our God and King. We pray these things in the name of our blessed Savior.